Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Jay Barteau, CEO and co-founder of Zeitworks, a business process automation platform that's raised more than $6 million in funding. Jay, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Sure. So I'm a tech guy. I was trained as a software engineer and got into the business as a software engineer. But pretty early on, I uh, got involved in doing startups and then uh, also got really interested in data and machine learning. I'm dating myself here. This is kind of back in the 90s, late 90s. But since kind of getting the startup bug and the machine learning bug, I've been co-founding venture-backed startups for the last 20 plus years or so in Seattle. And I've sold some of those companies to the likes of uh, Microsoft, uh, Hulu, Nielsen Net Ratings, um, and Alliance Health Networks. Are there any of those businesses that you're most proud of or any of those that you want to highlight and maybe talk about a bit more? Well, you know, there's kind of a theme in all of them. And actually, my current company, Zeitworks, is kind of in this theme as well. And the theme is, you know, using data, novel data, interesting data, and analytics and machine learning to provide some kind of transparency, more democracy into some some vertical or sector. So, I think what's a little bit unusual about me is that I've worked in a lot of different verticals over the years, kind of applying this data and machine learning playbook. Mm -hmm. So I've worked in e-commerce, I've worked in uh, online advertising, travel, medical informatics, and even consumer video. And so very different verticals. And I learned a lot about those industries, you know, doing startups in them. But the playbook is really around transparency. And so just to give you an example, in the late 90s, I co-founded a company called Ad Relevance uh, to measure online advertising. And at that point, online advertising was really starting to boom, but nobody had any real idea of who was advertising what and where and how much. And as I learned, you know, as I got into the space with my advertising uh, executive co-founder, You know, typically in the offline world, in the TV and radio and print world, there were books and some some data to give a campaign planner a sense of where uh, advertising was happening. So if you knew your competitor was advertising, you know, such and such on these TV channels at these times, you could plan your campaign accordingly. Well, nothing like that existed for online advertising. So we built a system that crawled around the web looking for advertising web objects, and we'd yank them down and classify them and and provide a detailed report. And so this was my first experience providing this level of transparency, which was very well received by some, but not liked by others. So for example, you know, Yahoo was the king of the hill at the time, and we exposed who was advertising on Yahoo, including Yahoo themselves, and they didn't like that. They felt they had a competitive advantage by not having that data be public. And so they got mad at us. And there were some incidents where we got cease and desist letters and, you know, they tried to cut off our data feeds and so forth. So that was kind of my first experience with that. It was scary, but I probably got a little bit of a rush off it, too. And so, you know, I've kind of continued that in my career to some degree 
Probably the company I'm most proud of is Faircast. I co-founded Faircast with a well-known uh, AI computer science professor here in Seattle, uh, Oren Etzioni. And Oren had this idea that, geez, you know, every time I go to book an airline ticket to the same destination, I seem to be paying a different price and I don't understand why. And so, you know, it turns out that the airlines use revenue management systems to optimize the price of a ticket. So they want to sell the right ticket to the right person at the right time. And, you know, different people have different reasons for taking airplane trips. Maybe it's for vacation, maybe it's for business, uh, et cetera. So Oren's hypothesis was that, you know, could we use machine learning technology to sort of reverse engineer, if you will, the airline revenue management systems? And, you know, a lot of people told us this couldn't be done. Uh, the data was too noisy and random and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But we did it and we did it successfully. Again, we ran into some airlines who didn't like it. And, you know, they didn't like the advantage that we were passing on to the consumer in this case to, to buy cheaper tickets when ideally they would have bought more expensive tickets. So another kind of example of democracy, uh, transparency, you know, I've got more examples, but that's kind of been the theme of my career. And were they sending you cease and desist letters as well? Well, they didn't, but one airline in particular shut off our data source. And so in order to build the predictive models for Faircast, we had to ingest huge volumes of airfare and hotel pricing data every day. And so in this case, you know, the data ultimately belonged to the airlines. Um, mm -hmm. The airlines could then ultimately decide who gets access to it. So it was scary. You know, there were some moments where we were like, geez, like, it's probably okay this one airline is unhappy with us. But, you know, what happens if all the airlines follow suit, then, you know, we'll be out of business. You know, a lot of these experiences have led me to a thesis that I often present to budding entrepreneurs, particularly ones that are interested in creating uh, AI and machine learning companies, where I point out that your AI and machine learning company is, yeah, you utilizes AI and machine learning, but really fundamentally what your company is is a data company. And you really have to strongly consider at the outset, what kind of data do you need and who does the data belong to? Is it someone else's data? Is it data that is proprietary that you collect, you know, et cetera? Because that, that can ultimately determine the success of your business. Mm, got it. Interesting. Now, I'd love to learn a bit more from your wisdom here, because, you know, most of the founders that we speak to, I would say, are maybe second time, third time founders, and they probably started their companies in the last 10 years. But you've been doing this for a long time. Uh, yeah. What year did you launch your first venture back startup or were you part of your first venture back startup? Well, I joined my first venture back startup in 1996 or maybe 1997, but I wasn't a co-founder. But I got exposed to, you know, venture capital and I got exposed to, again, machine learning and data and analytics. My first co-founding venture-backed company was in 1998, and that was Ad Relevance, the online advertising measurement tracking company. Wow. So how would you compare everything that happened in, what was it, like 2000, 2001 with, you know, the current state of the market today and everything that's going on? How do you compare those? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I don't think there's any comparison. I think that in the dot-com bubble burst crash, you know, things really, they really burst. They really crashed. And, you know, the speculation was just so high back in the late 90s around technology and data and information and 
the World Wide Web. But if you recall, you know, a lot of those companies, if not most or all of them, weren't making any money. It was all speculative. Mm -hmm. And so when the crash happened, it it happened in a big way. You know, I remember saying to friends like, you know, geez, like it was six months ago, I was a highly sought after, you know, technology executive. Now in say, you know, to that late 2001, early 2002, I couldn't get arrested. Um, I mean, it was, <laughs> it, was uh, it was quite dramatic. You know, since then, I certainly have seen slowdowns in the investing environment. And the latest slowdown is, you know, one as well. But, you know, that's kind of part of the game, I think. I think when you launch your own company, whether it's bootstrapped or venture back, you know, you have these exogenous shocks to the system that, that can affect you. And there's not a lot you can do about them. You know, it's always a good idea to run your business uh, judiciously and to try to conserve cash and, you know, don't have big uh, expensive parties or marketing campaigns that aren't data driven and all these other kinds of things. But, you know, it's you're a little dinghy out in the ocean on big waves and, you know, a big wave can come and take you out. It's just part of the game. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. And that's super interesting to hear. Another quick question for you. So if you look at AI and machine learning, it's you know all of the rage right now. I think it's hard to find a startup that's not having AI and machine learning on their homepage or you know, somewhere close yeah. by. How do you, you know, navigate that? And how do you just think about kind of the state of the market with everyone using those types of you know, buzzwords and those terms? It's a great question because it is challenging. You know, I, I, all the companies I've, you know, worked on have used real AI and machine learning technologies, which, you know, can have a lot of headaches associated with them. You know, I mentioned earlier, just procuring data and procuring it reliably, you know, is, can be challenging and, you know, can be risky as well. You know, data, real world data is often messy and and noisy and has all kinds of problems with it. And it has to be massaged heavily before it can be useful to machine learning models. Um, And so there's a lot of just non-sexy, you know, details when dealing with real machine learning technology that, you know, is not something you really want to yell from the rafters. It's, you know, things, things you have to deal with. Being out in a space now where everybody, as you say, is saying, you know, I've got this and I've got that, it certainly does water the experience down for everybody. So, you know, for example, I can tell you that on the Zengworks website, there is a mention of AI in a few places, but I've consciously limited the mentions of AI because it's, unfortunately, it's not very believable given the number of other people who claim to have AI. I'm glad that AI is very slowly but surely going through some democratization as well. You know, for example, like if you need to use OCR as part of your solution, you know, as of the last few years, there's a lot of really great, robust, reliable OCR systems out there that are cloud APIs that you can just use and, you know, pay as you go. But, you know, taking that and saying we're an AI company, um, if that's part of your solution, is a, a little disingenuous. But unfortunately, you see a lot of that. So, I guess the, the the big answer to your question is really to focus on the business value that you deliver to your customers, regardless of what's underneath the covers, and really have metrics to prove that you're better than your competitors, you know, if in fact you're using AI and they're not. By the way, I don't like the term AI. I think we're all sort of forced to use it because that's such a big part of the vocabulary. I prefer machine learning. You know, AI, I think, is just too overhyped and 
and uh, you know, it just comes with all kinds of baggage. Yeah, the number of companies that have .ai in their domain is uh, is crazy at this point. Yeah. yeah. Now, one other question, just to you know, better understand what makes you tick as a founder, as a leader, book would you say has had the greatest impact on you? And this could be a business book or it could just be a personal book that you know has really shaped how you view the world. Good question. So, you know, lots of business books out there, obviously. What I find with a lot of these business books is the content is basically in the first chapter and the rest of the chapters are, you know, just sort of repeating the same content. You know, a book that really kind of stands out to me is Grit by Angela Duckworth. You know, that that book is, I think, really kind of speaks to me about the entrepreneurial experience, meaning that you can have lots of degrees, you could have worked at big tech companies, you could have, you know, all kinds of different elements uh, to your pedigree. But, you know, these early stage companies, it's really about going down to the rock pile every day and just working your ass off, doing anything it possibly takes to you know, get your company to the next day or the next month. And so I really identify with this idea that, you know, sure, you could have a degree from MIT or Harvard or Stanford or whatever, but, you know, that's not going to help or save you necessarily if you're not willing to just, you know, bend over and pick up a shovel and, and put in the effort and do whatever it takes, whatever needs to be done, you know, to get your company to the next stage. And so for a CEO, I mean, it's, again, whatever it takes. I do a lot of active development on the website. I write a lot of the marketing material. You know, I QA the product and try to be helpful there. Obviously, I do the finances and interface with the board and all of those things, do fundraising. And so, you know, I just, I really just identified with this concept that it's not really necessarily how smart you are. It's just how hard you work and what your uh, perseverance is. I love that. And Grit is in my top list of books as well. I read that when I was six years into the current company that I run. And at that point, I was starting to get just burnt out. I was questioning if this is what I wanted to do with my life, you know, all of these types of things. And then I read Grit and that really made me kind of rethink what it means to, you know, have a passion and be an expert in something and kind of challenged a lot of my thinking and read that book. And that made me realize that I should continue. And then I think probably about a year or two after that is when yeah, I really did start to feel like this was my passion. Uh, but yeah, great book and really recommend that to any founder who's listening in. Absolutely. All right. So now let's, uh, let's switch gears and talk about what you're building. So can you walk me through the origin story behind the company? Sure. So the last five or six years of my career before I joined Zeitworks, I was CTO and managing director at a startup studio in Seattle called Madrona Venture Labs, backed by Madrona Venture Group, which is the largest VC in the Pacific Northwest. And we had a pretty cool gig. Myself and a few colleagues who are experienced operators and entrepreneurs were tasked with coming up with new venture-backable technology startup ideas. So whatever those ideas could come from wherever, sometimes they came from Madrona Venture Group, sometimes they came from our own personal experiences or our friends or, you know, what have you. The key to what we were doing in Madrona Venture Labs was to very carefully and methodically research those ideas. This is where a lot of entrepreneurs go wrong. They think of an idea. It sounds really cool. Their friends and family say it's cool. They run off and they build something only to discover later that maybe it's not such a good idea. Maybe what they thought was a pain point is actually not so much of a pain point and their solution is not a painkiller, but it's a vitamin. 
you know, et cetera, et cetera, insert the startup cliche, you know, in there. And so our goal was to do thorough enough research where we would kill most of the ideas we came up with. Because it's true, I think, when you look at probably a distribution of ideas and the ones that end up being successful, I think we all know that, you know, the numbers are, are against you. And so the idea then is kill most of the ideas based upon our research, but keep the few good ideas we would come up with each year, recruit entrepreneurs to work on them with us. In some cases, the entrepreneurs would bring the ideas to us. In other cases, they were our ideas. But once we thought we had a good idea and it was validated by investors uh, in our network, then we would start helping that entrepreneur build out their MVP, get some pilot customers, and ultimately raise um, a seed round. And so one of the ideas we worked on was Zeitworks, and we were investigating the automation space, specifically the RPA space, robotic process automation, which was starting to boom in the 2018 uh, timeframe or so. And so a colleague of ours at Madrona Venture Group said, go look at that space. It's booming. Some companies like UiPath and Automation Anywhere uh, and Blue Prism are turning into unicorns overnight. That excites venture capitalists. See what else there is to do there. And so we started digging in, talking to people, customer interviews and conversations, although can be arduous and painful, are a really key part to doing your research on your on your uh, company idea. Started talking to the automation vendors, heard what they had to say. They said, go talk to the management consultants. Go talk to the Deloitte's and McKinsey's and Ernst & Young's and, and even the smaller ones. They play a really big role in the business process analysis and modeling space. See what they have to say. So we went and talked to them, and they told us that oftentimes when they are helping their customers with automation projects, they first have to discover what the process is. So this kind of took us aback a little bit. So like we said, wait a minute, you've got 20 people processing uh, loan applications at a bank and the bank doesn't know what the process is that they're following. And it turns out, yeah, that's kind of the case. They may have started with a process, but over time with changes in the business and uh, employee attrition and so forth, after a while, you've got 20 people all doing different things. Some people may be doing parts of the steps better than others, some worse than others. Parts of the process uh, and the applications they use may need to be redesigned, refactored. The bottom line, though, was that you can't automate something if you don't understand it, because that poses a lot of risk to the automation projects. So that kind of really got us thinking, like, hmm. And so then we asked, well, how do you do this now? How do you find out what those processes really entail? And they said, well, we bring in a whole bunch of fresh college grads, young associates, and we run discovery workshops where they stand over the shoulders of the people doing these repetitive business processes, and they write down on a notepad everything they do. And then they get out a stopwatch and they time with the stopwatch how long they spend on the different parts of the application. And that's really where the light bulb went off. You know, we really just felt like, geez, like that sounds really time consuming and arduous and inaccurate. And so we thought, you know, why not solve this with technology instead of having a young associate from a consulting firm stand over the shoulders of these folks doing this work? Why not have a software agent that sits on the desktop computer and observes how these agents or workers are interacting with their applications 
what they're doing inside those applications, et cetera, uh, collect a whole bunch of data over long periods of time, take that data, send it back to a cloud, use machine learning technology on it to figure out where the patterns are, and then make the analytics available to the customer, whether it be a consultant or a manager of an operations team or what have you, available in a SaaS application where they can really see, again, transparency into what's actually going on in this black box that they call their operations group. And so that's really you know, how Zeitworks came about, um, was automating this frequently necessary discovery process. Now, I'll just add real quick that after talking with the management consulting groups, we went and talked to actual customers, people who are customers of the management consulting groups, customers who had a lot of repetitive uh, business process operations work. And we said, you know, what, what do you think of this? What do you think of automation? What's keeping you from doing automation? And, you know, generally what we heard was, yeah, I've heard of, you know, RPA. I'm interested in it. I do think I've got some processes that can be automated. But honestly, again, I don't know what my team does. I don't know where the problems are. I don't know if I'm getting the most potential I can out of my the humans on my team, much less uh, some software robot. So if you can help me figure out that first, so I understand what's going on. And then, yes, also help me figure out what processes or parts of processes could be automated, then that would be super useful. And so that's kind of where we settled and off we went. Wow, interesting. And a few more questions then from there. So a big thing right now that everyone's talking about is you know category creation, creating a category. What are your views there? Do you view this as a new category that you're creating or are you really transforming an existing category that's already there? Interesting question. Great question. I mean, I guess it's kind of a matter of semantics. I mean, I I think we are a new category in some way, but from another point of view, we're evolving a category. So for example, in the automation area, there's another space, if you will, called process mining. And in process mining, log files from large enterprise systems like ERP systems or CRM systems are collected and analyzed with a certain type of algorithm to find process execution patterns. And so there's companies out there like Salonis um, or Process Gold or Signabio, a whole bunch of process mining companies out there. And again, they they ingest these log files from these big systems. And so a couple of things about their problem. One is that, you know, the log files are structured, you know, in a fairly standard way. And so, you know, the problem at hand is relatively straightforward, especially since these algorithms that, that do this analysis are, are pretty mature and you can find them in open source and, and so forth. So that's one thing. The other thing is that the process that's being run, maybe it's accounts receivable or accounts payable, has to exist within this enterprise system. And so if someone's using SAP to do accounts receivable, but then they're going off SAP and going to Excel or uh, Outlook or some other number of desktop applications, process mining won't pick that up. And so what we do is we do kind of a form of process mining, but we do it across desktop applications. And our data source is not a nice structured log file. It's this spurious user-generated event stream that we collect with our software sensor. And the data is very voluminous, it's very noisy, it's very very heterogeneous. And so our problem is a lot more difficult to find and extract signal and, and pass on value. So from that standpoint, you know, we're, depending on how we, uh, what we call ourselves, 
we are evolving a category. But from another standpoint, you know, especially since that, you know, we believe that what we're trying to do with automation and, and technology is more continuous improvement. Whereas the old manual discovery workshops that I described were kind of like a once and done, let's do this for a week, collect a bunch of data, pull it all together and, and be done with it. So we, our philosophy is install the Zightworks software, keep it running, um, set up, get a baseline, figure out what you need to start changing and improving, make those changes, keep measuring, come up with new hypotheses, make changes and so forth in a continuous improvement loop. And so from that standpoint, we're, we're more like a new category. Got it. Super interesting. And when it comes to markets and adoption, are there any markets that you're really seeing gain the most traction? And then in terms of traction, are there any metrics that you're comfortable with sharing? Yeah. So one great thing that one thing a venture capitalist always likes to see is a, an enormous TAM, mm-hmm. total addressable market. And, you know, the bigger, the better because um, you might end up with competition. Um, you're not going to capture all the fish in the sea. So there's got to make sure that you've got enough of a, you know, a body of water and fish to, to catch. And so, you know, repetitive, human-driven information processing, it's extremely widespread across many industries, financial services, healthcare, insurance, industrial manufacturing. I mean, you name it. Um, there's people out there you know, uh, manually pushing information around. And, you know, in a lot of cases, the even though they're doing things manually, human judgment is required as part of those processes. So, you know, there's a lot of fear that, oh, the robots are coming and they're going to replace everybody and everybody's going to be out of work. And I actually don't think that that's the case. I do think that there's a lot of places where automation technology can improve the lives of these folks doing some of the more repetitive, arduous tasks that they have to do. But I see those technologies, technology and people living side by side. So the good news is that there's a huge TAM for us. Any good startup, though, is going to want to start focused. You can't, you don't want to boil the ocean, you, to use another startup cliche. And so you want to pick somewhere to start, you know, have it, have it uh, influence your go-to-market, who you're reaching out to, who are the people at the companies that are the decision makers, all those things. And so... We've generally, we've started in financial services um, as a place to start. But I know, for example, that there's huge opportunities in healthcare, uh, especially with revenue cycle management. So as a startup too, I'm also kind of cognizant of like, who's going to be able to move relatively quickly? And, you know, healthcare, you know, one of the challenges for healthcare and startups, of course, is that healthcare moves really slowly. And there's a lot of companies in healthcare that are, you know, startup killers. Because mm-hmm. you have a meeting with them, you show off the product, they're like, hey, this is great. This is awesome. Let's meet again uh, next month. I'll bring some of my colleagues. And, you know, a year or two goes goodbye and you're still having the same conversations. So that stuff can kill startups in your company. So being cognizant about going after your initial customers that you think can move more quickly and be more agile, I think is really important. Nice. I love that. Now, one question for you that I wanted to ask because you're experienced here, you know, bringing an idea to market is obviously, you know, not easy to do. What's the greatest challenge that you've faced so far with this company and how have you overcome that challenge? Well, I think that I'm not sure we've overcome it. Um, I hope that we're in the process of overcoming it. You know, when I, some of the verticals that I mentioned, financial services and and, uh, insurance and Healthcare and so forth. I mean, these are big, oftentimes older companies, 
you know, many of them are interested in understanding their business processes and improving them because they're in the midst of sort of what's called sometimes digital transformation. And digital transformation is this very broad term that kind of can mean some different things to different people. But it's basically saying, you know, we're an old crusty company with lots of technical debt and uh, antiquated systems. We need to come into the 21st century and be efficient and be data-driven and all of these things. And, you know, it's hard to fix and change those things in, in older companies. You know, it's challenging to, to do those kinds of things. So that said, a lot of those companies who need a product like Zeitworks also may be more inclined to want to work with an older, more mature company. So, you know, we've certainly been told by some consulting groups and some larger customers well, we like what you're doing, but you know we're not sure we want to work with an early stage company and a startup. Come back to us when you have you know a couple dozen customers, or you know come back to us you know at your Series B or or something larger uh, like that. And so you know those are those are challenging things to hear because you're like, well, you know how do I bootstrap this thing? I've got chicken and an egg problem of. Uh, people like what I'm doing, but they want me to get more experience. They want more case studies, you know, et cetera, et cetera, before they'll work with me. So figuring out how to scrounge up those things and and figure out what does come first, the chicken or the egg, uh, is a lot of what the challenge is. So again, we we focus on small to mid-sized customers. We're happy to work with larger ones, but you know, we really have are in the process of accumulating, you know, those those first case studies and references and testimonials you know, to really get our flywheel turning. Nice. Last question for you. If we zoom out into the future five years from now, what is that five-year vision for the company? Well, you know, I do think that intelligent automation or hyper-automation, sort of two different terms that two different large consulting or research groups call what's happening will be a lot farther along. I think that automation technology is here to stay and will improve And I hope that over the next five years, more of the challenges of how humans work alongside this technology are are figured out. So, you know, again, there's been a lot of hype around RPA and that it's going to, you know, replace everybody. Um, You know, the half the world is going to be out of work and AI is going to take over and and Skynet is, you know, going to come and, and kill everybody and so forth. I don't see that happening. What I do see happening is... AI and machine learning technology becoming augmentative or assistive to people. So, you know, the AI steps in when when it's necessary and needed and really is solving a problem. But then when the human is needed, um, they step in and and take over the reins and and do the right thing and use the human cognition that that we're all so good at, our pattern recognition um, and classification and abilities that our brain has and that the current AI doesn't have, although I'm sure that a current AI will continue to improve. So seeing how these artificial systems and humans learn to really work together over time, I think is going to be really, really interesting to see. And so for Zeitworks, you know, I think, you know, we're on the path of helping organizations understand and have transparency into the black box of their current operations. But we also, you know, can find and locate automation opportunities and pull those automation technologies into our customers' systems and operations. And then we can use that same technology to measure the ROI of the RPA. So, you know, I see us much farther down the path of uh, working with automation technology 
and bringing you know data and insights and automation all together. Nice. I love that. Unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. But before we wrap up, if people want to follow along with your journey as you build, where's the best place for them to go? Well, certainly go to ZeitWorks.com. We have all kinds of material there on the company. You know, also that's where we post articles and blogs and podcasts and webinars and, you know, all of those things. So I think that that's probably the best place. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for your time. This has been a really fun conversation. I really learned a lot and I'm really excited about what you guys are building. So thanks again and wish you best of luck in executing on this vision. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having me on. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, let's keep in touch. Awesome.